You know, there is a heaviness that comes with preaching. Uh, It's a joy, to to be certain, for sure, because uh, the material we're dealing with, it it is joy-producing, but at the same time, uh, we are not dealing with words from a self-help guru or the latest in psychology or science, we are coming to the Holy Scripture, the the Holy Word of God. And we are expounding on words that are from God Himself to us. And that makes these words incredibly important. And those who handle them and teach them to others are accountable to God for handling them correctly. So every time we come to a book of the Bible, In our Sunday worship, there is a sense of burden that is also mixed with joy and anticipation. But I will tell you as we kind of stand right on the threshold this morning of stepping into the book of Romans, Romans feels a little different for me. I've put it off for a decade. Because there's something about this book, if I'm to be honest, there's something about this book I find intimidating. Its importance is unmistakable. More books have been written about the letter to the Romans than any other book in the Bible. Throughout church history, it has been recognized as something like the Mount Everest of Scripture. It stands out even amongst the peaks of the mighty Himalayas. I just did a brief, I like to sometimes just do a little research at the beginning to see how other pastors have handled a particular book, like how long did they spend. You'll find it interesting. I I saw, uh, many of you are familiar with John Piper. I saw John Piper spend about nine years in the book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you're familiar with that name at all, a preacher from the the, the previous century in in England, uh, spent 17 years in the book of Romans, and he didn't finish. He ended his sermon on Romans chapter 15, and he retired. By God's grace, we will not be that long. Some of you are like, I don't know if I would be alive still 17 years from now. Let me give you a few quotes from other theologians, pastors of of the past. John Calvin in his commentary on Romans says, it will hence appear beyond controversy that besides other excellencies and those remarkable, speaking of the scripture, they are excellent. They are remarkable. But this can with truth be said of Romans. And it is what can never be sufficiently appreciated that when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, this letter, He has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Martin Luther. Remember the 95 Theses guy? Wittenberg Castle. Reformer. Martin Luther said, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it 
word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. A more recent scholar, J.I. Packer, if you have not read his book, Knowing God, make that part of your journey this year. Pick up the book, read it, you will not regret it. J.I. Packer says Paul's letter to Rome is the high peak of Scripture, however you look at it. All roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. So with all of that, maybe you understand why I've been hesitant. But here we are. I've been hesitant to scale this particular mountain peak, and yet here we are at the base of it, hesitant, but yet we must scale it. And by God's grace, we will. But here's what I'm asking of you from the outset. I'm asking you even now, before we've exposited the first word or applied the first principle from this book, that you commit to pray all the way through this book. That the Lord will teach His people. So with that, let's dive in. I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. By the way, I don't plan on the 17 years. I plan more like a year and a half, about 18 months, okay? Just in case you're, in case you're wondering. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask that your Spirit would give light as we strive to understand not just for the sake of head knowledge, not just for the sake of scaling this almost immeasurable peak of the book of Romans, but so that you might produce in us the kind of faith that will bring glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you just a brief word about the background and, and purpose of this letter, just to uh, again, help us as we step in to understand what it is we're dealing with. 
Uh, and by the way, we're going to have the Discovering God Hour uh, beginning at about 11.15. And that's going to be the time where we're going to reserve questions and comments. Um, again, we could spend 17 years here in sermons. We're not going to do that. But through the Discovering God Hour, uh, we can spend a little bit more time. Okay, so, um, so be thinking as you go about questions or, or comments or testimonies about what it is that you hear. Bring them into that second hour. Um, the book of Romans was almost certainly written sometime between A.D. 55 and A.D. 58 during Paul's three-month stay in Greece uh, during his final missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 20. Um, we, we can narrow this date down pretty precisely. And again, we can talk about that in the next hour. As far as why Paul wrote this letter, that's, that's a little bit more difficult to answer. Rome was not a church that was founded by Paul. He had not been to Rome yet. He's going to make that very clear. And it's also very likely that the church at Rome was not founded by an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Uh, The the stories of of the the church that are being being founded and led by Peter uh, are just not likely at all. church was probably founded by Jews who had traveled from Rome to Jerusalem during Pentecost. You remember in Acts when Pentecost happened uh, after the resurrection, the Spirit of God descends down on the apostles, those that were in the upper room waiting, and they went out and, and the people said, what is this? Like we're, we're hearing these people speak in our own language. Why? Because there were people from all over the Roman Empire, Jews from all over the Roman Empire, who made the trek to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover as they were commanded in the law. And they are confronted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are converted. They're there for a time. They're they're discipled. They return to Rome. And the gospel spreads and church is formed. Paul spends some time in the book, chapters 9-11 through in particular, dealing with the relationship between Jews and Greeks. He does that in or Gentiles. He does that in other books, uh, other letters that he writes as well. This might have been part of his purpose. In fact, the church at Rome seemed to be doing much better, though, than some of those other churches that Paul wrote to. As a matter of fact, in, in chapter 15 of Romans, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. I have a hard time imagining him writing that to the church at Corinth who was struggling with unity. Another possible reason for writing was to lay out a clear doctrine of salvation. So he begins his letter by talking about the Gospel of God in chapter 1, verse 1, and he ends the letter by appealing to his Gospel in chapter 16, verse 25. And all through Romans, uh, really every part of Romans is an exposition of this Gospel. Whether he's talking about justification or hope for the future, or transformation in the present. It's all a discussion of the meaning and the power of the gospel. But why send such a letter to a church you didn't found and you've never visited? Especially when it seems like the church is doing pretty well. Well, in part, Paul is probably feeling some level of responsibility for the church because he is, after all, the apostle for the Gentiles. And so, as part of his apostleship, he probably feels some responsibility to, to, to have connection, to, to exercise his authority over this church. But it's also 
explained by Paul in chapter 15, verse 14, that, that there's another reason. He kind of he plays this card close to his vest until near the end of the book, and then, he, and then he reveals his hand. Here's what he says. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So Paul, in Paul's mind, his plan is, I'm going to take this money that I've collected from the churches over here, Ephesus and Colossae and Thessalonica, they've given uh, an offering to take back to the church at Jerusalem who's struggling at the moment. I'm going to take that to Jerusalem, but I know I'm going to be encountered. I know I'm going to be confronted by the religious leaders. But once we clear that up, I want to go to Spain because the Gospel hasn't made it there yet. So he says, on the way to Spain, I want to stop in Rome. Why? Because, he says, I want to be helped on my journey to Spain by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So it seems that Paul wants to make Rome the operational center for his missionary journey to Spain. So this letter then would not only serve as an official introduction of Paul to the Roman church, but it would lay out the very, uh, very clearly for them his doctrine of the gospel that he would eventually carry to Spain. It's kind of a missionary letter seeking support for the spread of the gospel, the planting of churches. Kind of puts things in perspective for us, doesn't it? Paul was a man on a mission to spread the gospel to those who had not heard. He's making plans. That's his goal. That's his desire. And so right off the bat, even just understanding the whole purpose behind this letter, it leads us into the question, like, what are, what are, what are we doing as Christians? What, what are we trying to accomplish? What, what are your goals in life? And as we ponder that question, we, we step into the first chapter, the opening phrase, the introductory remarks of Paul to the Romans. And what Paul has to say in the introduction is significant. In part because it's going to take the question that's already on our minds and it's going to press on it. It's going to press the question into our hearts. And so he begins, Paul the servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's a fairly typical greeting, but it is by far the longest greeting that Paul gives in any of his letters to any church, probably because he's never been here before. But in this greeting, he, he lays out three things for us. Three M's to make it very, very simple. Number one, the man, the message, and the mission. The man, the message, and the mission. In other words, he's going to talk about himself. Who am I? What am I about? He's going to talk about the message that he has been entrusted with. He's going to give us a summary outline of the gospel. And then he's going to talk about the mission of this gospel. What is it aiming at? What is its goal and what is its purpose? Let's start 
though, by talking about the man who was Paul, what made him do the things that he did. And, and I'm not going to give you the whole history. If you want more of the background of Paul, you can read about it in the book of Acts. Uh, you, you know Paul was uh, a very religious Jew um, on the pathway to becoming a Pharisee, more than likely. He was, he was a, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a scholar. And he was so fervent in the law that he was killing Christians because he felt like they were in violation of the law of God. They were bad Jews. But what Paul wants us to know at the outset of this letter is really four things about himself. Number one, he calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this title, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, it really carries two purposes, two meanings. It shows both great humility on Paul's part, but also great purpose, great responsibility. Servant in all actuality is not the best one-for-one translation of this word in the Greek. The better translation is the word slave. I am slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. My purpose, in other words, Paul is saying, is now bound up in the larger purpose of my king and my master. My identity is bound up in my relationship to him. So why then would translations use the word servant and not slave? Really probably two reasons. One, there's a lot of cultural baggage in our country that comes along with the term slave. There's a lot of explaining that typically has to come along with that. And so I think a lot of translations just decided it'd be easier just to use the word servant. But number two it's likely that Paul here is also uh, using this phrase very intentionally, that he is trying to connect in our thinking his role as servant of the Lord with the title in the Old Testament of servant of the Lord that gets attached or used for men like Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. It was an official title. We, this man, Abraham, he is the servant of the Lord. The prophets with their message to Israel, they were the servant of the Lord. And I think in some way Paul is wanting our minds to go back. And and, and so what that does for us is not only does it speak of Paul's humility to say that my will, my, my life is not my own. I am bound up in the cause of Christ. But it is also saying that the role of servant also comes with authority. The message that I bring is not mine. The authority that I exercise is not mine. I'm merely the servant who's been tasked with a message and with a mission. It is a derived authority. It is not authority that comes out of Paul's capabilities or his intelligence or his creativity or his eloquence. It is an authority that comes out of his relationship with the Lord. I am his servant. It is humility. But it is also like, hey, remember those guys in the Old Testament that were tasked with a message and a mission from God? That's who I am. It brings with it an inherent authority, which prepares us to understand the next term that Paul uses of himself. He is an apostle. Now, generally speaking, an apostle is simply a person who is sent out on behalf of someone else generally to carry a message. They are sent ones. But in the New Testament, the word often takes on a 
a more specific meaning. Most often it refers to the 12 apostles of Jesus. And so Paul is routinely putting himself in the same category as those 12 men. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been taught by Christ. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 1. And he was given a special commission by Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So there were 12 apostles for Israel, one for each tribe, presumably. And there was one for the Gentiles, Paul. He was an apostle. By the way, those qualifications, having met and seen the risen Lord, having been taught by the risen Lord, and commissioned by Him to go out, means that the role of apostle does not exist today. This is, this is not a gift. This is not a calling that has been uh, transferred down. It ended with those 13 individuals. He was an apostle. But he was an apostle of God. He was called to be an apostle by Christ. And, and this is the third thing we, we've got we to give some attention to. He was, he was called. He was called to this position. Which again means he was not an apostle by choice. It was the Lord Himself who called him into this ministry. And listen, I just uh, a little, little housekeeping, a little, just un- understand me a little bit. I, when I speak of my own role in ministry as a pastor, as an elder of a church, I, I hesitate to speak of it in terms of a calling. I, I, don't, I don't speak of other pastors or ministers of the gospel in terms of having received a call. I don't speak of, of missionaries going onto the mission field in terms of a call to the mission field. Mostly because I don't see that use of the word in the New Testament. It's not used that way for those roles or those gifts. In the New Testament, when it talks about the calling of God, almost every single time it's in reference to the call that we receive into a right relationship with God. He is calling us into salvation. He is calling us into grace and mercy. He is calling us into fellowship. That's how the word gets used way more often than not. Pastoral ministry, and and even by virtue, you know, offshoot missionary type ministry, is always talked about not in terms of calling, but in terms of gifting. That's why we're given a list of character qualities that we should evaluate before placing a man into one of those positions, into the position of an elder or pastor, rather than simply taking his word for it that God has called him. Because there are many churches that have got themselves into deep trouble. They have been deeply wounded and hurt because some man showed up saying, I've been called by God and I have a degree and the church just takes his word for it. He's a good speaker. He's a great administrator. And we never pause to ask the question, does he have the gift? Does his character match the requirements in Titus and Timothy? Folks, and I just, you know, I've also known too many people who felt called 
that like they had the calling and they just never went. Just never did it. And this raises a sticky issue for us. Because either they misunderstood God's call, which means God's call can be really like, ooh, I don't know, was that? Right? Like, like that means I can either mistake God's call, like like maybe God is speaking to me, or maybe I have indigestion. Right? Like I, it's hard to know. I'm not sure, right? They either can misunderstand God's call or they resisted God's call and they're guilty of sin. Well, that's pretty awkward too. Either way, though, it means that the call of God on our lives can be resisted or mistaken for your own emotional or willful desires. Yet, folks, in the New Testament, when God calls someone, it is unmistakable and it is irresistible. Paul was called to be an apostle. He didn't debate that. He just did it. Paul was a slave of Christ Jesus who was called, he was tasked with the role of apostle, and finally he was set apart. He was separated. Paul's ministry of apostleship was given by God to Paul, it separated him out for this purpose, for the gospel of God. In in other words, it is the gospel that is both from God and about God. It is God's gospel. It is his story. He is the theme. He is the primary actor. It is his. His author and finisher of our faith. So folks, if I could just say this to summarize, at every turn in Paul's description of himself, he is quick to point the spotlight in the Lord's direction, isn't he? Paul was merely a slave. He had no authority of his own. His apostleship was, was given to him. It was not something that he took. And even that was not to be used for his own purposes, like to gain power or prestige or wealth but to serve the gospel. To spread the news of God's work, not Paul's work. To spread the news of God's worth, not Paul's worth. To make God famous, not Paul famous. This is who Paul was. This is what drove Paul. So here we are asking the question again, who who are you? (laughs) What, What What makes you do what you do? We're not apostles, but if you've given yourself to Christ in faith, then you are a servant. You are a slave. That language is all over the New Testament. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's the language of slavery. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what that's saying? I am a servant set apart for his purposes. And we are all striving towards the words of affirmation that Jesus says is available to his servants in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. It is who we are. And you might be tempted to think, like, like well, then I'm never going to give myself to Jesus because I won't make myself slave to anything. Right? Right? I'm going to be servant or slave to anything, but hold on a second, because Jesus says 
Don't you know that if you commit sin, you are slave to sin? For Paul says in Romans 6.6, 6, we know that our old self is crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. What do you say? Well, that's, <laughs> that's really disappointing, right? Because uh, we love our freedom. And we love thinking of ourselves in terms of freedom. But the Bible holds out two categories for you. You are either slave to sin or you are slave to Christ. Everyone serves something. You're either slave to money or sex or youth or beauty or power or food. Or you can be set free from all of that and you can serve Christ who is a far better master who says take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light and I am gentle and lowly therefore when you serve me you will find rest for your souls because I hope you understand that is a revolutionary statement that Jesus makes no God or guru had ever spoken like that service was always hard Service was generally menial, sucked the life out of you, oppressed you. But Jesus says, my service, I'll give you rest in my service. These are the only two options available. Everyone serves something. What are you pursuing? What do you serve? Folks, if the answer isn't the gospel, then your priorities are out of order. And you're going to end up working yourself in all kinds of consequences and, and finally going to work yourself right into death itself in service to an unkind master. Let's talk about the message that Paul was tasked to take. He said his ministry and his calling were directed to serve the gospel. And now he sets out a brief summary of what that gospel is. And there are a couple of things he wants us to know about it. Number one, he wants us to know that the gospel is really, really old. Right? You see what he says in verse number two? The gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Right? In other words, this is not something new. Christianity is not something new. Christianity is, is the fulfillment of something very, very old. As a matter of fact, this is not the first time that the word, you, like, like we don't encounter the word gospel for the first time in the New Testament even. It shows up in the Old Testament. The, the word gospel is simply good news. In Isaiah, for one, mentions repeatedly that there is good news to be proclaimed to the people of God. There is salvation coming to God's people, Israel. You're going to be rescued from captivity. Good news. Gospel. Message from God. Folks, it is very clear that Paul picks up this term gospel because he sees it as the fulfillment of the promises of God to Israel of their ultimate climactic salvation. Good news. And so now, all of those promises are bound up in and answered by Christ Jesus. This is not something new. It is something very, very old. Makes sense even when you consider that, that Paul is about to call Jesus the Son of God. 
Well, that was a term attached to Israel in the Old Testament. They were the Son of God. But as Son, they failed in their responsibilities to bring the glory of God to all the earth. They failed. And so in steps the only begotten Son of God to do what Israel could not. Bring freedom, salvation, and ultimately the authority of God to reign over all the earth. It's an old message. What was, we could say it this way, it's the same story. The New Testament and the Old Testament are saying, they're telling the same story, pointing to the same person, presenting the same hope. It's just what was concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New. That's why some people refer to the Old Testament as the shadow lands. That, that's a term that is, that is derived from what Hebrews, how Hebrews talks about the law and, and the, the religious system of Israel that's laid out in the Old Testament. He says those things were shadows of what was yet to come. The gospel is really, really old. The second thing he wants to know is that the gospel is centered on God's Son. This is the gospel that was promised from old in the Holy Scriptures concerning God's Son. The Son of God. He is center stage. He is the one written about and anticipated in the Old Testament. He is the one through whom all the promises of God to his people would be affirmed and guaranteed. He is center stage. Folks, make no mistake, the gospel is not first about us. It is first about him. And there are two statements now that Paul gives to help describe who this Son of God is. The first one he says that this Son of God who was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, he became human. Now it's important, the word order here, like, like, like Paul starts out saying, Son of God. That means from, from before this whole becoming human thing, he was already the Son of God. He existed in eternity past with God the Father as his equal. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. He became human. He was and always has been the Son of God, but then, at, at, at this point in history, the eternal Son of God became human. And that's really important for a couple of reasons. I, I don't have time to spend uh, uh, much time in any of these reasons. I'm actually going to give them to you. Number one, it means that because He became human, He experienced what it's like to be us. He didn't just come and say, you know, this whole cross thing. I'm just going to come as a man, hop on the cross. Let's just get this whole thing over with. Because I want to spend as little time down there as possible. Right? No, no, no. He came as a baby. Why? To experience life. So that he might, so he might know our suffering. And Hebrews says that makes him a sympathetic high priest. He can enter into our weakness and into our hardship and into our suffering and help like no one else can help. Like no other God can help. Why? Because He has walked in our shoes. He is the God who came off the mountain. He is the God who came to us. 
In other words, folks, you can never, you, you can never look at Jesus and say, well, you just don't understand. You just understand how hard it is. Because he does understand. He's been there. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to be hurt. He knows what it is to be sick. He knows what it is to be betrayed by those he loved and trusted. He knows what it is to be abused and beaten. He knows what it is to be murdered and wrongfully accused. He knows you. He knows. He became man. It also qualifies him to save. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, if he wanted to rescue humans, he had to become human. The debt of humanity had to be paid, and it could only be paid by a human. He had to be made like us in order to save us. But it also qualifies him to rule. He's the son of David, which means he is the heir of all of the promises of God made to David. Promises of an eternal throne. Promises of an everlasting righteous kingdom. Promises of healing for the nations. All flow through the son of David. It is his right now to rule. The second phrase that Paul gives us, verse number four, and he, the son of God, who became the son of David, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this verse is a really good example of why sometimes we have to read the scripture carefully. Because some people have taken this verse to say that what really happened, see, was that God looked down from heaven, he needed a hero. And he looked down from heaven and he saw this guy, Jesus, and he was a really good guy and he was a really good teacher and he was striving to obey the law. And God was like, you're going to be my hero. And in order to become the hero, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself on the cross. But after you do, then I will elevate you to this position of son of God. I will deify you. I will make you God if you follow through and if you will be my hero. But that is not what this verse says. First of all, he does not become the Son of God after the resurrection. Right? Paul already said he was the Son of God. Then he became the Son of David. Then he died and rose again. The verse does not say either that he was declared to be the Son of God or made to be the Son of God. Instead, what it says is that he was declared to be the Son of God with power or in power. What's the difference then? So, so he's son of God in the previous verse. Now he's the son of God in power. What's the difference? Well, the difference is the in power part, isn't it? What's the significance of that? It's referring, folks, to his right to rule as our messianic king. It means that he has accomplished everything required for our redemption and now takes his seat as the rightful king over the people he has purchased with his own blood. He now has authority. Remember what he says right before he has ascended into heaven? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You say, wasn't he God before time? Yes. 
But now he has the authority to look at you and say, you are forgiven. You are mine. Now he has authority to take you who were destined for death, doomed to the kingdom of darkness. He has the authority to take you from that kingdom and make you his. And he will rule over you in righteousness for all eternity. And of the extent and the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. understand the magnitude of what Paul is describing for us. This gospel is not new. It is the natural culmination of the law and the prophets and the temple worship system in Israel. And that gospel is about the eternal Son of God who has existed before all time, who was equal with the Father in every respect. But that Son became a human so that he could become obedient to death in order to become our Savior King. Folks, what Messiah does that. What God does that? What king would do that? What divine being would come and suffer and die to have truly is only one. Folks, that is the gospel that Paul says his calling and his apostleship is serving. I serve the gospel. Which leads him to mission. Verse number five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What's the mission? Well, the mission certainly was to take the gospel and so people could hear and people could get saved, right? Yes. The mission was to take the gospel to the Romans so they might hear and be saved. The mission was to, to trickle down the generations to us. So we might hear and be saved, yes. So that we might, as he says, become obedient. Right? He wants to bring about the obedience of faith, which means both the obedience that begins with faith and the obedience that is generated by faith. In other words, right, like, like the act of putting my faith in Jesus, that's obeying the gospel. You should put your trust in Jesus. If you do not, you are disobeying. Repent and believe, Jesus says. Do not disobey. But once you do obey, once you do express that faith, then that faith continues on to produce obedience. It's really hard to obey without faith, isn't it? But it is impossible to have faith without obedience. That's what James tells us in James chapter 2. If you genuinely have faith, it's going to make a difference. Things are going to change. So Paul is, is focusing on spreading the gospel to people so that men and women all over the world might be saved from judgment against their disobedience. But that, folks, listen, and this becomes really important to us because that part of the mission was merely a means to a greater end. 
the mission of seeing people saved and spreading the gospel to people so that they might put their faith in Christ was a means to a greater purpose. What is that greater purpose? He tells us. So they might come, that we might bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His, Jesus' name. In other words, folks, Paul is saying that the ultimate motivation for evangelization and for missions work must be the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. John Stott says, the highest missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is, nor love for the sinner who are alienated and perishing, as strong as that incentive is. But the highest missionary motive is zeal. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen to me. If we attempt missions or even personal evangelism for any other motivation other than the exaltation of Jesus, then we won't last. We won't make it. If you try to evangelize the people of our community, and you you just go out and you start by giving out food, and you try to establish connection, and you try to share the gospel, and if your main goal in doing such a thing is anything other than the glory of God, you're not going to make it. Because if you're primarily motivated by obedience to the Great Commission, then you're either going to decide it's not worth it and give up entirely, or you're just going to be miserable because results are not going to happen very quickly. The results of your effort are probably going to be slow and unimpressive, and that's hard. Or on the other hand, you could just be tempted to make the gospel a legalistic standard that has to be lived up to in order to just a, a free reception of grace. And you'll put the gospel out of reach for people. Just be like, obey, 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 obey. You've got to fix yourself. And that's the message people will hear. And you will turn the gospel into a list of works rather than a free gift. But on the other hand, if you're primarily motivated by love for the sinner, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. Because people are hard. And people can be manipulative. Manipulative. And they will take advantage of your kindness. And you'll eventually find them so hard to love that, again, you're just going to quit. Or you're going to be tempted to water down the gospel so much because you're so passionate about people and you so want them just to just, just believe it, just believe it. You're just going to water down the message to make it easy. Just, be like, just, just listen, just, just don't worry about it. Just pray this prayer, right? Just pray this prayer and try to mean it. We'll water down the gospel message. And we'll end up selling something that is not gospel at all. But folks, if you are primarily motivated by the glory of Jesus' name, then you will find grace to continue without compromise. Because it's not going to be about your success anymore. It's his name. It's his gospel. It's his grace that saves. I'm just the messenger. When you find that his love feeds yours, And that His grace supports you and enables your service and His sovereignty frees you from chasing numbers and success. The ministry in the gospel will not threaten to burn you out. Folks, whatever we attempt in our mission zeal, both here and abroad, both in our own backyard and across the world, if we are not doing it primarily for the sake of the exaltation of the name of the Lord Jesus, then we are wrongly motivated. And that's basically how Paul closes out his intro. 
I know I've, I've gone long, but I promise I, like, I'm just determined. I'm going to get in seven verses, okay? So we'll be done very, very soon. Paul closes out to all those in Rome who have believed this message. This is who you are. You are loved by God. You are called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, from God our Father, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, in other words, in Christ, through the gospel, these four things are yours, and we're done. Number one, you can know for certain that you are loved. Christ died for you. There is no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So when you're down and when you're feeling forgotten or mistreated, remember, Christian, there is one whose love for you stretches infinitely beyond all others. It will never fail. Number two, you are called. You're called into sainthood. Sainthood is not a special category of Christians, by the way. It's all Christians, right? You were called to sainthood. You were set apart. Just like Paul said, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Now he says, you are called to be saints. You are called to be set apart. This is not just something special unique for Paul. It's us. It's you. You are set apart. You have been called to serve the gospel. To seek the exaltation and the glory of the name of God by your life. Number three, grace to you. In other words, you have divine power in your corner. Anything and everything you need to do, the will of God will be given to you when you need it. Most of us probably don't need millions of dollars to do the will of God. We just need the strength to be faithful day after day after day. Grace is yours. Divine power is yours. And finally, peace. Peace. Peace is a complicated word in the Scriptures. It does not just mean the absence of conflict. It also means something like like to make whole or complete. So the idea is this. Life is complex. There are many different parts. And if any of those parts are missing or broken, it can cause you to feel as if life is descending into chaos. The walls can start to shake and to crumble. Peace is wholeness being restored. promise of peace is that you can enjoy that sense of completeness now in Christ. He is the Prince of Peace and through Him you can be made to be at peace with God and with one another. He can bring, he can bring peace to the chaos of your life. He can make whole what is broken. Folks, it's no wonder that Paul says that he will only speak of what Christ had accomplished in and through him by the power of the Spirit of God. He says that later in Romans 11. Understand, this is not a do-better message. This is not a try-harder message. This is a message about 
seeing the glory of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ, which will compel you into his service. It will reorder your desires and priorities. Let's pray. Now, there is much to consider here. There is much to chew on. There is much for us to try to digest. But I think at the heart of it all, there is kind of the nagging question of what we are all about. What we are striving for. What are our goals? And it's so easy in a world full of so much distraction, in a world that's offering us so much in the way of entertainment and empty promises. A world that is moving so fast that we hardly have time to stop and catch our breath. That it is easy in the midst of that kind of a system for our priorities just to become out of whack. To just start living day after day pursuing existence more than we are pursuing Christ. So, God, I ask for your help this morning to reorder our desires, impress upon us the legitimacy of our calling to serve Christ through the gospel. No matter what our vocation is, no matter where we live, no matter what our bank account says, no matter what our talents, we're called to serve the gospel. And we can go in the knowledge and the confidence that your grace is with us. Your peace is making us whole. And you love us. Lord, if there are those this morning that are, that maybe, maybe they're here with us, and maybe, maybe they don't know. Maybe they have not heard your call. Maybe they are attempting to resist your call. I pray that your spirit would make the grace of the gospel clear. And I pray that your call would be indeed irresistible. I pray that you would breathe life to those who are spiritually dead. Give them eyes to see. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name.